All right, so we're picking up again today. We're back to our uh, subject of spiritual warfare. And uh, you remember perhaps that last week our message was uh, entitled Satan's War on the Mind. And I want to come to part two of that message today. Uh, as I mentioned in the previous study, as we, as we finish things up, uh, there just really wasn't enough time to, to get everything into the one teaching. So I thought it would be better to, to break it into uh, two parts. And so we'll pick up with the second part today. Now, let me just refresh your memory. In our last study, we saw how Satan's primary target is the mind. We looked at a, a number of different uh, passages that that show us that he has access to our minds. He's able to uh, put thoughts into our heads. He's, he's able to affect our thinking process. We saw how he attacks us in our um, thinking process by suggesting things like uh, God's love and mercy for us have run out. Uh, we saw how he seeks to plant doubt about the truthfulness of God's word in our minds. And then lastly, we saw how uh, he will at times hurl blasphemous, perverse, and other evil thoughts into our minds. Today, I want to pick up where we left off with the evil thoughts and look at something similar but different. It's similar in the sense it's that, that barrage uh, that comes uh, sometimes uh, to our minds, um, but it's not in this particular case, it's not so much the blasphemous thoughts or the perverse thoughts, but I want to talk uh, about what we might call uh, the destructive thoughts or the consigning thoughts. And sometimes what the enemy will do is he will uh, plague our minds with uh, destructive thoughts. And what I mean by that is uh, thoughts of sort of like self-destruction and, uh, or thoughts of consignment that we are consigned to a certain type of behavior or a certain type of lifestyle that's destructive, that, that that's just who we are and what we are, and, and we can never get out of it. There's no escape from it. And so we want to look at uh, this idea of destructive or consigning thoughts. So as I'm saying, these thoughts are intended by the devil to consign us to destructive behaviors, destructive lifestyles. And I want to give you a few examples of things, and then I want to make the connection between these behaviors and the thought process that is often behind them. Um, something that's huge in our culture, especially among uh, women, and, and particularly younger women, is uh, anorexia, bulimia, uh, things like that. These are, these are destructive behaviors, destructive lifestyles where girls will starve themselves to death uh, because they think they're, they're overweight. So they'll either starve themselves with anorexia or they'll uh, purge what they eat with bulimia. But there's also another uh, phenomenon that has come into the culture, again, mostly with young ladies. Occasionally you'll find some young men with this, but this whole thing of cutting or self-mutilation uh, young girls um, mutilating their bodies, cutting themselves up. And so you've got 
these things. But then there's also, in this area, uh, homosexual behavior and the lifestyle. This is a destructive lifestyle, regardless of what we're being told by uh, the cultural elites. Um, it's, it's a destructive lifestyle. And uh, a lot of times there is this connection that I'm going to show you there as well. And then there's uh, suicidal tendencies. And there's a, a plague uh, today in this regard. Suicidal tendencies, thoughts of, of killing oneself and so forth. But these behaviors, when you sit down and talk to people, you find that these behaviors are generally driven by these certain thought patterns. And so it's thoughts like this. For the girls struggling with the uh, anorexia and the bulimia, you know, thoughts, just obsessive thoughts like you're fat, you're obese, you're, you're ugly, no, nobody likes you. And, and it's like a relentless thing that assaults the mind. And when it comes to the whole cutting thing, again, there's uh, similar kinds of things. You're worthless. Uh, you're a loser. Uh, you'd be better off dead. Everybody would be better off if you were dead. And of course, these lead often to suicidal thoughts and tendencies as well. And the same kind of thing uh, can occur with the homosexual thing. There's just the constant, relentless uh, suggesting that this is who you are and this is uh, just the way it is and you, you were born this way or whatever and, and now you, you must embrace that. Everyone who, who deals with people struggling with these kinds of things knows that there, there are these thought patterns that are connected to it. In 30 years of, of counseling, 30 plus years of counseling, in every one of the things that I just mentioned, in, in virtually every case, you have these plaguing thoughts that are oftentimes the, the driving force. I'm not saying that that's the only component, but it's certainly there. Now, generally what would happen is a person would go and seek counseling, seek therapy, and the, the psychiatrists themselves, they don't really, they can identify these thoughts, they see them as destructive, but they really don't know why they exist. They don't have um, a, a final or, or a total explanation for it, they just know that they're there. Well, I think that the explanation is this is part of the devil's work. This is what the devil does. Of course, the psychiatric world's not going to know that because they don't believe that there's a devil. Uh, and so they're trying to handle it just strictly from a, um, the, the perspective of psychology, emotional uh, issues, and so forth. Or they're maybe trying to handle it sometimes uh, from the biological standpoint, which those things certainly can be a factor, but there's this other component that is so often neglected or overlooked. And sometimes even when it comes to Christian counselors, there's not the recognition of the satanic um, component here. I remember years ago sitting down and talking to a, a psychologist, a PhD in psychology, and we were talking about some of these kinds of things. And I was mentioning to him these thought patterns and, and the resulting behaviors and so forth. And, and I suggested to him that 
this was part of the work of the devil. And, and he was a Christian psychologist and he just sort of blew, blew me off like, oh, that, you know, that's ridiculous. That, that, no, that, that doesn't have, he assured me that has nothing to do with it. I said, really? Are, are you sure? How do you know? It's completely consistent with what the devil does. The Bible tells us in Revelation 9, verse 11, that the king over the bottomless pit, his name is Apollyon in the Greek, which means destroyer. And Satan is set on destroying people's lives. And this is one of the ways he does it. With coming to us and barraging us at times with these destructive thoughts, the, these, these plaguing thoughts that are all meant to drive us in a direction that will ultimately uh, ruin our lives. And like I said, even pushing us to the, the point of suicide. Now, how do we deal with this? Well, we deal with it in a variety of ways perhaps, but primarily, and especially even because this kind of thing can happen even with Christians at times, we, we need to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You see, I have to recognize, like we pointed out before, the source of these thoughts. I have to remember that the one who's bringing them to me is the father of lies. All deception originated with him. And so I have to recognize that, but then I have to stand on the truth of God's word, that God loves me, that God is not uh, looking at my weight, that God is not looking at my complexion, that God is not uh, loving me because I have a high IQ or I'm successful or all of those things that the world puts on us. God loves me because he loves me. And my identity has to be found in Christ. That I am a, uh, a child of God. That I am a creature made in the image of God. That uh, my identity, even sexually, is to be taken from what God says about me. Not from what the culture says. Or not from even how I might feel or the thoughts that are going through my head. And when it comes to things like suicide, I have to bring those thoughts captive. No, my life is not my own. I was bought with a price. I can't take my life. It's not mine to take. It's God's. So you see, it's through bringing our thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ by taking his word and applying his word to these things. This is how we will ultimately gain the victory. But, like I said, we've got to recognize the source, recognize that the, the motive is your destruction, the source is deception, but the answer is the truth. Jesus said the truth will set you free, and that's what happens. The truth of God's word sets us free from the lies of the devil that want to consign us to destructive behaviors and lifestyles. So... That's one. Secondly, another of the devil's wiles is the use of the fear tactic. So just going back, remember, we looked at condemnation. We looked at the temptation to doubt. We looked at the evil thoughts, now the destructive consigning thoughts, and now fear. 
The fear tactic. The devil threatens evil consequences to those who would trust and obey the Lord. This is just so um, consistently the way he does things. You have a a conviction about obedience. You have a, a sense that God's calling you to step out in a certain direction and the enemy will come in and he will try to strike fear in your heart. Oh, if you do this. You know, if you really give your life to Jesus, you know what he's going to do? He's going to take you and he's going to set you in the heart of the jungle with uh, the, the, the cannibals and they're going to put you in a pot and boil you and eat you. So don't even think about being a missionary. <laughs> Those are the kinds of crazy thoughts that sometimes can come to our minds. Now, this fear tactic uh, was vividly seen in the story that I want to share with you here. Um, there are many examples of this, but I, I'm going to share this particular story with you. It's the story of Rabbi Leopold Cohen. Leopold Cohen was a Hungarian Jewish uh, rabbi, and through various circumstances, he came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. And when he received Christ, uh, he wanted uh, to make a public uh, confession of his faith, and he understood that to be baptized would be the, the way to do that. And so his story is amazing. The story of the events that transpired on the day of his baptism, they amply illustrate uh, the devil's attempts to hinder God's work through this tactic of striking fear in us. So let me, let me read you the story in his own words. This is what he said. And this is on the day that he was scheduled to be baptized. Early that morning about daybreak, I awakened with a shiver and it seemed as if someone spoke saying, what are you doing today? I sprang out of bed and walked up and down the room like one suffering from high fever, almost not knowing what I was doing. I had been anxiously waiting to be baptized as I was looking forward with joy to the time when I could publicly confess the Lord Jesus Christ before men. But now a sudden change came over me. The voice that was talking to me was that of the great enemy of mankind, though, of course, he was so sly that I could not perceive at the time that it was Satan. Many questions were proposed to me rapidly, one after another, and perplexed me so that I felt ill mentally and physically. He questioned thus, are you going to, you are going to be baptized, aren't you? Do you know that as soon as you take this step, you will be cut off from your wife whom you love so dearly? She can never live with you again. Do you realize that your four children whom you are so fond of will never call you Papa or look into your face again? Your brothers, sisters, and all your relatives will consider you dead and all their hearts will be broken forever. How can you be so cruel to your own flesh and blood? Your own people will despise and hate you. You are cutting yourself off from your people. You have no friends in this world. You will be left alone to drift like a piece of timber on the ocean. What will become of your name, your reputation, your official position? 
He goes on and he says, these thoughts put to me in the form of almost audible questions by Satan, whom I for the first time met as a personal enemy, distressed and almost unbalanced my mind. I could not sleep, neither could I eat. My friend who was with me noticing this tried to strengthen and encourage me in every possible way, but nothing availed. I knelt down in prayer to God, but the satanic delusion was as strong as before. So he goes uh, on, he continues the story by describing uh, what happened after he came to the point where he just more or less conceded defeat, like I, I can't do this, I can't go through this. So he went to the, the man who was to baptize him that day, or at least he was making his way to inform him that he wouldn't uh, be able to follow through with it. And yet, at the same time, interestingly, there was a congregation that had heard about his conversion and knew that this was the day that he was to be baptized, and they began to pray for him. And he didn't know it at the time. He received a letter later that informed him that the congregation had prayed for him at this specific time. They felt an urgency to pray for him. And he goes on to say that... um, that as they began to pray, suddenly the oppression lifted, and instead of canceling his appointment, he was baptized and made his public confession just as he had planned to do. Now, the interesting thing here is this man, Leopold Cohen, uh, went on to establish a a thriving congregation in Brooklyn, New York, um, the early part of the 20th century, and he would lead thousands of Jewish people to faith in the Messiah. And so you see, the the devil was there. Notice that rapid succession of thoughts. Your wife, you're going to lose her. Your kids, you're never going to see, you're not going to have that relationship with them again. You're never going to see them again. Your friends, your community, that's the kind of thing the devil does. As we feel led by the Lord to take a step in a certain direction, oftentimes he comes with those irrational kinds of thoughts and he just uh, is rapid fire, uh, there they are, hitting us from every direction. If that's happened to you, know this. You've been assaulted by the devil. That's the kind of thing he does. He uses this fear tactic. Another story that I'll, I'll briefly tell that uh, illustrates this point is back in the, the 1700s in England, there was the the eight, it's called the 18th century revival now as they look back on it. But it was that time when God just radically poured out his spirit. Tens of thousands of people came to faith in Christ. And the two most prominent um, <clears throat> names involved in that uh, 18th century revival were uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley. And Whitfield was the one that the revival really sort of actually began through. It was his preaching. And he would go and he would preach to the miners in the fields uh, around Bristol in England. And uh, literally thousands upon thousands of people would come to hear him preach. So there was this great outpouring of the spirit that was happening. But Whitfield had to leave England and he had to come what, to what was then um, the, the colonies, the British colonies here on this continent. And yet he knew he couldn't just step away from the work. He knew that there had to be somebody that would come and, and take his role on. 
because he, he could see that God was moving and you know, there was a great work to be done. So as he thought about it and prayed about it, uh, his friend John Wesley came to mind. So he sent an invitation to Wesley asking him if he would uh, take that position over, that he would be the one to go and continue this great preaching ministry that God had opened up uh, all throughout the countryside of England. And Wesley, the moment the invitation came, he was suddenly stricken with the fear that if he responded positively, if he said yes, that he would die. It would be certain death for him. And feeling that way, uh, of course, he didn't, you know, he thought, well, this can't be God. You know, if th- this whole thing, you know, God must be telling me no, not to do it. And he opened his Bible on four different occasions looking for guidance. And every time the text seemed to affirm that he would certainly die if he did this. And he sought counsel from friends and fellow ministers. Everybody told him the same thing. Oh, don't do it. No, the Lord's showing you. He's warning you. It's not his will. You can't do it. Well, there, there was some so there was some other thing, God, you know, pressing him, sort of, you know, continuing to move him in the direction. Whitfield finally presses him for a final answer. And Wesley, uh, against his own better judgment, he surrendered and said, I'll do it. And he said, I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish. And so John Wesley stepped in and he began to do that preaching and tens of thousands of people would come to Christ through his ministry. He did die 45 years later (laughs) after an amazingly fruitful ministry. But I read that story in, um, it was actually in Whitfield's biography years ago, and it just so aptly illustrated this point of Satan trying to strike fear in us and threatening us with evil consequences for obeying and trusting God. And listen, he'll do the same thing to you. Be aware of that. But know this, how do we respond? Know this, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So when that spirit of fear comes upon you, when those uh, thoughts in rapid succession come, telling you that, no, if you do this, this this is gonna happen. Know that that's the enemy. And if the enemy is pushing against us to try to prevent us from doing something, then you can be pretty certain that that's the very thing you need to do because that's the thing that God is wanting you to do. I have had this experience many times over in my life. And um, this passage, uh, 2 Timothy 1.7, has been what has carried me through so often and enabled me to uh, just not be overcome by that fear, and just to go forward, just say, no, God God has not given us a spirit of fear. This irrational fear, uh, we call them phobias today, irrational fears. The word phobia is a Greek word, just means fear. But uh, it's those irrational fears. And again, quite often they come in, in rapid succession. So that is another way that Satan wars against us in our mind. But we come now to the final one that I want to address here, and that is depression. And along with depression, I'm going to combine discouragement and despair because it's a package. They all kind of go together. And depression is perhaps the most devastating of the devil's attacks upon our mind because with depression, he It's sort of a combination of all the things that we're talking about. 
When a person goes into a deep depression, condemnation is part of it. Doubt, minds often are plagued with doubt. Uh, Oftentimes, as I've said, the evil thoughts, blasphemous thoughts, perverse thoughts, destructive thoughts, fear, all of these things, they're, they're all components of it. And so depression is something that the enemy often will uh, assault us with and he's wanting to overwhelm us with a sense of hopelessness. Now, here's something that you need to know. Many of God's people throughout the ages have known what it is to be depressed. We have that record in the scripture itself. There's examples in the Bible. God's servants who experienced depression and they even wrote about it. Both the psalmist and the apostle Paul experienced depression as well as many others. Let me read to you from Psalm 77. Listen to what the psalmist said. If you've ever gone through any kind of serious depression, you're gonna identify with this immediately. This is what he says. He says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. I went through deep season of depression years ago uh, as a result of this um, disease that I have lived with for a long time. Uh, Chronic fatigue syndrome, Epstein-Barr virus, they just finally came out and said, this is, uh, finally, (laughs) after 30 plus years, uh, this is a disease. We we have to stop calling it a syndrome. It's actually a disease. So they've come up now with a new uh, name for it. Um, And... I think that's good because it is a disease, and it, but, it, but it does affect many of its victims with uh, an attack on the central nervous system, which results many times in depression. So I have experienced this very thing that the psalmist wrote. And I'll never forget being in the midst of a deep depression and reading this and just simply being able to say, thank you, God, somebody else has been here. Thank you that somebody who wrote your word has been here. Because there are those times, those seasons when you, you, you can't sleep, um, you're deprived of your sleep, you're, you're filled with anxiety, you, um, you, you can't even speak sometimes. It can be that intense. That was the psalmist experience. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 1.8. He said concerning himself and his fellow workers, he said, we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. The apostle despairing of life. That sounds like a a description of depression there. But it wasn't just the, the biblical writers, but on throughout the long history of the church, we have examples of God's servants who have suffered depression. The great poet and hymn writer, William Cooper, who, um, the, the hymn that I think we would be maybe most familiar with uh, would be the, um, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilt and stains. He penned those words, but he suffered severely from depression, so much so that on a few occasions he attempted to commit suicide. 
And on one occasion, he was so despondent, he, he lived in London, and um, it was back in the uh, early 1800s, mid-1800s, and he, uh, he determined to kill himself by throwing himself off of, off of what was then the London Bridge into the Thames River. And so he got in his carriage, he had his driver, you know, take him, the driver didn't know what he was going to do, take me to the London Bridge. It was a very foggy night, and after a long ride, the, the coach finally came to a stop, and it stopped right where it started, back at the house of William Cooper. God did not allow that carriage to go to the bridge, because Cooper was going to jump off the bridge and kill himself. His pastor was another great hymn writer, John Newton, who wrote the immortal hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton realized at this point that the the situation was so desperate that they had to do something for Cooper. And what he did is for several consecutive uh, weeks... He gathered the whole church together to pray specifically for William Cooper and for this agitated state that he was in. And after a season of prayer, that deep depression over him broke. And and although he struggled the rest of his life with depression to some degree, he never again attempted to kill himself. And he was freed from that that type of of, um, deep depression that would have led him to that. So there's an example there. But then Spurgeon, we referenced Spurgeon in our previous message. And Spurgeon also suffered from depression. And this is what he said. He said, I of all men am perhaps the subject of the deepest depression. Depression so fearful. I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. So deep depression. God's servants have gone through these things. This is part of what Satan does. Now, I'm not saying that every bout of depression is satanically inspired, but he often has a hand somewhere in these experiences, especially in the life of believers. There are many components to these things, but my point is we can't dismiss the devil. We can't overlook the devil. And when it comes to depression, the question, of course, is, well, how how do we deal with this? How do we overcome it? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that there are different sources for depression. And so we have to do our best to try to get at what the source is. And then depending on what the source is, we can deal with it from there. But um, like I said, there's always going to be this component. So we can always safely say that when it comes to depression, we need prayer. And we need the, uh, the application of the scripture. The problem is sometimes the person who's depressed finds it very difficult to pray. The person who's deeply depressed finds it very difficult to find consolation from the word. So that's where we as the body of Christ, God's people, if we know people who are in a place like this, we have to pray for them. We have to encourage them with the word of God in those times when they're, they're maybe not even capable of doing that themselves. But other times, and we do need to, to take 
a lot of things into consideration. Whenever I talk to people uh, who are struggling with depression, I spend a lot of time trying to get at what is the root here? Because if the root is purely spiritual, then we have to address it in a purely spiritual fashion. We have to deal with it just straight from that you know, scriptural prayer, God's word, faith. Uh, but if, if there's other elements that are there, maybe there's some physiological issue there, we, we have to take that into consideration as well. So when I talk to people who are struggling with depression, I ask them questions about their diet. Because sometimes it can be a change of diet that's necessary. I ask them about their exercising habits because sometimes uh, it can be something like that that needs to be uh, considered. And there are times, of course, in certain cases where medication is needed. And thank God we live in a time where there are medications that can help people. I have friends, pastors, guys who have been in ministry for years who have come under severe uh, bouts of anxiety and depression, and thank God there was medication to help them over that hump, to get them to a place where they could get back to uh, being able to think a little more clearly and, and move beyond it. And, and I bring this up because some people say, oh, well, you know, as a Christian, you should never have to take any medication. Well, remember your brain is a physical uh, organ, and just like any other organ in your body, it, it can be, at times, um, it can be stricken with some kind of uh, illness type of a thing, some a physiological component there causing an imbalance and things like that. Uh, sometimes people overlook that. Sometimes people think, well, you know, if, if, if a person takes uh, medication to help them with depression or, or anxiety or something, well, they're just not trusting God. Well, that, that's not necessarily the case. You wouldn't say to a diabetic, you know, if you take that insulin, you're not trusting God. You, would, you shouldn't say that. Uh, if you did, you, that, that's a very dangerous thing to say, and it's a very foolish thing to say. So when it comes to depression, we have to recognize, yes, this is one of Satan's main instruments, discouragement, despair, and we've got to do our best to, to help uh, those who are struggling uh, with those things. So prayer, absolutely. Just like we read, or just like I shared with you about Newton and uh, Cooper. And applying the scripture, of course, absolutely. But sometimes we need to take into consideration the practical realm. And so these are some of the ways that Satan wars against our minds. And there are other things that we could talk about, but I think we get the picture here. But once again, let me remind you of the four primary things as we, as we fight this fight of faith against the enemy. We've got as our weapons the word, prayer, praise, faith. Those are the things that we have. And so we want to bring the word of God always to bear on all of these situations. This is why it's so important that we know the Word of God. It's, it's why it's so important that we, we saturate our lives with biblical truth. Because the devil will come at us and he'll hit us from every side with these things. And we need to be able to respond 
And we're going to move on in a few weeks here and get into the armor of God. And we're going to talk about the place of the word of God. And we're going to see how the whole armor is essentially just different uh, facets of God's word. So we've got the word. We've got prayer. We need to pray when we're under attack, when we know people who are under attack. We need to pray. We need to pray for them. We need to ask people to pray for us at times. But, you know, we need to praise too. Because as we just call out to God, as we cry out to God, as we praise him, as we worship him, that will many times be the very thing that'll break that uh, thing that the enemy has brought against us. As we pray and as the presence of the Lord comes to minister, that drives the enemy back. And then finally, there's faith. Standing in faith. Remembering who God is, remembering his promises and holding fast to them, standing on them, resisting the devil who goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Remember, we shared that passage last week in the closing. And what does it say? Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that your, your brothers and sisters all around the world are experiencing the same afflictions. We're all going through the same thing in one way or another. And take comfort in that. You're not alone. A lot of times what the enemy wants to do is make you think you're the only person that's ever gone through this. You're the only person who's ever felt this way. You're the only person who's who's ever thought these contemptible, wicked, vile thoughts. No, you're not. Because these are the tactics of the devil. And every believer, to some degree or another, experiences these things. But we stand fast in the faith, knowing that this is just part of the battle. And it's our faith in the end that overcomes the world and overcomes the devil. So Lord, help us to take these things to heart. And thank you, Lord, for exposing the work of the enemy where otherwise it might remain hidden and, and not understood and therefore not correctly dealt with. So help us, Lord, to be wise. Help us to be able to identify when the devil has his hand in something. And Lord, help us to take the weapons that you've given to us, not carnal, not merely human, but mighty in God for pulling down the strongholds and casting down these lies and these arguments. Lord, help us to bring our thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.